All right, Revelation 22, and we're going to pick up at verse 6. The title is, His Return is Imminent. I don't have any slides for you, but this would have been a great study for me to have slides for you. And you'll see why. But um, I just ran out of time. Too many rabbit trails. You never do, you know, some of you, you teach, you know, and the thing is you start studying something, it's like, wow, this is really interesting. And I just had too many rabbit trails today to get to slides. But I had a fun time um, going down those trails. And um, we'll see how far I get through all of this. But verse 6, then he said to me, these are faithful. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And we'll stop right there. As we've gone through the book of Revelation we have seen those opening, uh, that in the opening chapter, the risen Lord who defeated death, who holds the keys uh, to death in Hades. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And he is seen in his glory as the risen Lord. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we're given exhortations, seven of them, to seven different churches that were alive at the time that John was writing. Of course, he's on the island of Patmos. In exile, the year is 96 AD. He's at the end of his life. It's been some time since Jesus has uh, risen and gone to be with the Lord, some 63 years about. And so he gives exhortations to the churches. Most of the churches receive a commendation and a correction. Some, like at the church of Smyrna, they only received a word of commendation. And other churches, there was not much good to say. But the Lord said these similar things to the churches. I know your works. I know what's happening. And he gave a beautiful promise to every one of those churches that would be overcomers. Who are overcomers? Those who have faith in the Lord. And then we saw in chapter 4, heaven open. John is called up there and he receives the revelation of future things. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, it talks about the things that were the things that are and the things that were going to be in the future. And so as we move into chapter 4, we begin to move out into the future. Chapter 6 begins what is known as the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. It's seven years of God judging the nations and waking up a nation, Israel, that they might see Jesus as the one whom they've pierced as the only Son of God, and that day will come. And so they go through these from chapter 6 through 19. We go through this time of persecution of the saints that are coming to faith. There you see the Antichrist on the rise. You see the false prophet. You see the rise of a one-world government controlling commerce and trade. You see a one-world religion, and it's all seen is based out of ancient Babylon, a revived ancient Babylon. But eventually, that is destroyed, and the second coming of Christ takes place, and he rescues the people of Israel 
from down um, in the south of Israel all the way to the north. And it culminates with him coming and putting his foot upon the Mount of Olives just outside of the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. And it splits in two. And he comes and he delivers those that are on the Temple Mount about to be wiped out. And he then establishes his rule and reign for a thousand years. The earth is going to be replenished. The earth is going to be rejuvenated. As I said in one of the recent studies, now we're not told whether that's going to happen in an instant or that's going to happen over that thousand-year period of time. I really hope it happens in an instant because I would like to kind of see a recreation of planet Earth. However it happens, the, we read in the Old Testament that the desert places are going to be like springs. They're going to be like gardens, and the deserts are going to be just fields of flowers. It's going to be an awesome, rejuvenated planet which he will reign upon for a thousand years. Now, there's going to be those that come into the tribulation out of the, the judgment of the sheeps and the goats, which is talked about in the Olivet Discourse, those who treated Israel well and will be welcomed in. Those who treated Israel poorly will not. Now, is somebody saved by treating Israel well and not saved by you know, forfeiting salvation by not treating them well? No, but those that are saved are going to be treating them well. And they are going to come into the, to the kingdom they're the ones, if you will, that Jesus said, I've invited people to come, but they wouldn't come. So now go into the highways and the byways and invite them to come. And it's going to be that marriage supper of the Lamb that they're being brought into. And there they will live in this thousand-year reign. Now they're going to have offspring. At the end of that thousand years, it's the offspring of those who have come in through the Great Tribulation that some will be led in a rebellion at the end of that thousand years by Satan to Come and fight against the Lord, believe it or not. And the Lord will destroy uh, him at this time. He's, uh, up to that time, he's only been chained for a thousand years. But then he will be thrown into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the Antichrist are. And we read last week about the new heaven and the new earth, specifically the city of Jerusalem, which is the gem of it all, literally, right? The gem. And it is a place where... Uh, the bride of Christ will dwell. It's where the Lord will be. And, and so this is what's going to happen. And we end up in the eternal state. And beyond that, we don't have a lot of details. But there's a lot of time. There's a lot of time from that point forward, like eternity. God's got some great ideas. Don't know what they are yet. But we'll, we'll get to discover them. And we'll be able to learn them together. And it is going to be glorious. This is what we've seen in the book of Revelation. As we come to verse 6, it says, These words are faithful and true. You can go to the bank on it. You can count on that summary and everything that was declared in here as being that which will come to pass. This is not just wild exaggeration. This is not an overactive imagination. This is faithful and true words. As the Lord God of the Holy Prophet sent his angels to show. This is a prophetic word. It's a word from the Lord that he wants us to know is certain. And we can always rely upon the word of God. And what he declares will take place in the future. And he's not in a rush. And he's not in a hurry to get it done. Now we're going to talk about how it's going to happen quickly. Or it's going to happen soon. But we're not told when it's going to take place. Now, there tends to be two opposite reactions among Christians to the book of Revelation. One of them 
is to put um, nearly zero emphasis on it outside of maybe chapters 2 and 3. And they'll talk about the seven letters to the seven churches. But outside of that, comments like, it's too confusing, it's too hard to understand, it's a hidden book, which is really interesting because the book is called what? Yeah, Revelation. Um, so, and this is, a, a, this is not a title get, that the church has given to it. This is what God says this book is. It's an unveiling of future things. And so many are afraid to deal with it. It's too controversial. Well, it is controversial, that's for sure. And people have aligned on either side of it. But is it a difficult book to understand? I don't know. You just went through it. Judge for yourself. It's, you've got to study. There's a lot of imagery. But if you're willing to go into the Old Testament and study what God has already said, no book has more allusions um, to the Old Testament than does the book of Revelation. And the more you know, understand the Old Testament, the easier it is to come to a conclusion. So if we're just careful and we're mindful to not try and um, elaborate on things that we don't know, and we're willing to just allow the Word of God to speak and seek to find a literal understanding of it through all of the imagery and all the metaphors, it's not too hard to come to an understanding on. Well, the opposite reaction is to make Revelation almost like the only book of the Bible. In other words, everything um, in Scripture is only for the book of Revelation. And so you never get a balanced diet of the rest of Scripture. Neither of these extremes are good. We should study it. We should be familiar with it. It is a book that promises um, a blessing for those who study and those who obey. And so we should be those that put our mind and our attention to it. You know, many places in Scripture, like I'm thinking of the book of Daniel, chapter 9, where the command is given about prophecy, no one understand. No one understand. Here's what you can no one understand. Whenever God says no one understand, you can be pretty confident there'll be a great deal of ignorance around that topic. Just you know, search it out. Look up in Scripture all the places where the Lord talks about maybe a mystery or ignorance or understand and watch the confusion that exists around that topic. But we have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit that teaches us and instructs us. What he says of this prophecy is that, verse 7, he's going to come quickly. And so we, we've talked about this recently um, as we've gone through, but what's, what's quickly? I mean, how fast is fast? Because it's been 2,000 years almost. Well, again, we know how long the Lord's timetable is. If you were with us on our study on Sunday morning, 1,000 years is as what? One day. So the Lord's been gone for two days. But in fairness... He's writing to us, and he's saying we could expect the soon return of the Lord. And the church did that. The early church lived expectantly that Jesus was going to return at any moment. This is why Peter had to cut, write the defense and saying, listen, some mock and scoff at the teaching that Jesus is going to come. And they say, where, has been, where is his appearing since he you know, departed? And he says, this is something that they forget about. And they, they don't understand that God is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish. So we, we know why the Lord is going to do this. But the New Testament describes us as currently being in what is called the last days. I could turn to many passages. Um, there's some in 1 John. But here's one, Acts 2, 16 and 17. 
Um, Peter quoting, says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall, see, uh, shall dream dreams. So he is quoting from the prophet Joel and saying, It's fulfilled. Which therefore puts us in the time period that Joel spoke of, which is the last days. Again, you can find other references. First John talks about us being in the last days as well. Which brings us to this one point that I think is so important. I know we've hit it before, but just an opportunity to take a few more swings at a, a couple of topics before we wrap up this book. And that is this, the teaching of the imminence of Christ. That he could return at any moment. In other words, it's like it's hanging over our head. It's imminent. It could, this is something that could happen without any notice. It's imminent. Now, if, you, if something has to happen beforehand, then you don't use the word imminent. But when we read through Scripture, the question we need to ask ourselves, although the New Testament does not use that word imminent, did the church live, and did the writers of the New Testament live like the Lord was about to come quickly? Did they expect him to come soon? One author speaking of the doctrine of the imminent coming of Christ said, Christ coming to rapture the church is always close at hand in the sense that it could happen at any moment. I think this is one of the greatest um, uh, points to point to a pre-tribulation rapture is because the Lord could come back at any moment. Other things may happen before Christ comes to rapture the church, like Israel might be formed as a nation again. But nothing must take place before. The emphasis on must. Nothing must take place before he comes. And the author goes on to say, if something else must take place before Christ can come, then his coming is not imminent. The necessity of something else taking place first destroys the concept of the imminent coming of Christ. This is why when you say, well, I believe that rapture of the church happens at the end of the tribulation, I can make you a really, really long list of things that must take place before that happens, which removes that element of imminent. And so we don't know when it's going to happen. Only the Lord knows this. So this is a, the teaching that I think is so important for us to, to understand. Now, I, I don't want to just say that and walk on. I actually want to take a few moments to go through some of the New Testament references that I, help, that I believe help to point this out. Um, and, and the first thing I'd like to say is that um, to this point that uh, it's been 2,000 years, Jesus alluded to the fact that there could be an age. In Mark 13, 7, he says, But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. So he kind of, he kind of speaks about how there's going to be this expectation that it's now. And he's going to say, listen, things are going to continue on for a while. That's Mark 13, 7. Romans 13, 11, speaking about the time being near. And do this knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You can hear in the text, things are about to happen. 
Or how about in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 through 31? How quickly did Paul think the Lord was going to return? So quickly that he said, it's my opinion, you shouldn't even bother to get married. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Yeah, you, you guys can just have fun discussing that on the way home as couples, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to give you any help. Verse 30, those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Wow, that's, that's expectation, isn't it? I mean, your purchases, your emotional highs, your emotional lows, <laughs> all of this stuff. He says, don't worry about it. Things are happening so quickly. You shouldn't even get tied up with this. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, the expectation is that some would be present at the time of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. There was an expectation that they were going to be alive at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. I mean, this is something that can happen at a time you don't know, and it can happen quickly. Or Hebrews 10.25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The, the, the idea that Jesus is returning soon should cause church attendance... To go up, not down. And two more verses we read of the, how the coming of the Lord is called to be at hand. James 5.8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then again in 1 Peter 4.7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. I can keep on going. You know many of them. You've probably already added some to the list. This is, this is clear. Not once, not twice. There are dozens of places where the New Testament speaks of us being in the last days, that the time is short, that it's at hand, which leads us to use the word the early church believed in the imminent return. So to be fair, imminent is not found in the New Testament. It's a concept that's there and we put the title imminent. And if you think that's not fair to do that, just keep in mind the word Trinity is not in there either. So this is a fair way to look at it. And that's why I took the time to go through those verses to see. And so he is saying here that the time is quick. I'm about to come. And we should live as though he could come today. Because there is nothing that has to happen in order for the Lord to return. And if you think there is, then what's your biblical proof? Actually, I can, I'll say there's only one thing that I can think of that um, had to happen and would happen first, and that is that Peter would die in a way he was not pleased with because Jesus said, they're going to take you away. They're going to lead you, you know, out. And they're going to take you to a place. You're going to stretch your hands out. And, G and Peter, Peter died uh, with his arms stretched out in crucifixion. 
church history tells us. So if Jesus said that was going to happen, um, and of course, you know, the, 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 I don't know if it's true or not, um, but they say that every time, you know, Peter got sick, everybody got a little excited because like, this guy's got to go because Jesus said, you know, he was going to go. So was that a sneeze you had there, Peter? Well, there is a blessedness. Look at the end of verse 7. There's a blessedness. I'm back in Revelation 22. There is a blessedness that is promised. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who, who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's that word prophecy again. I want you to note the word prophets, prophecy, as we make our way through the, these last verses. The word of God, not just the book of Revelation, but the word of God has no value to the person who hears and walks away unchanged. The, the blessing of the word of God comes with obedience. John 13, verse 17 Washing the disciples' feet. He says, do you know what I've done? If you know these things, what does he say? Blessed are you if you do them. We know we're supposed to be serving one another. We know that. If you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? Do them. And so there's a blessing and obedience to the Lord. There's a fullness. If you lack a fullness in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ and your mar life is marked with disobedience or you know, kind of a casual approach to your walk, then don't, don't try and figure yourself out and why you feel that way. You're missing out on this spiritual blessedness that, the, that comes as a result of being obedient to the Lord. So these themes of the reliability of God's word, the quickness of the return of the Lord, and the need for obedience, they are found throughout the entire book of Revelation. Let's move on, verses 8 and 9. John is overwhelmed by the moment. He sees the angel, the message, and it causes him to once again make this mistake of bowing down before the feet of the angel. And the angel's like, hey, I'm a slave too. That's, I mean, really, if you want to, under, that, that is how he says it. I'm a slave too. I'm just like you. I mean, don't kneel before me. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. And here's the instruction. Don't worship me. Worship God. It's interesting how um, society in um, you know, man can get so preoccupied with the lesser angels, you know, and get all caught up in angels. Angels don't want you to be caught up in them. The angels, if you get caught up in an angel, they're just, they're just waving you off up in heaven. What are they doing? Don't they know who the great one is? Don't they know that it's Jesus? That we are the ones that bow at his feet? That we are just like you? We are just servants and slaves of the Lord that need to obey the words of Scripture. I think we're going to stare at him for a while when we get to heaven. I make no mistake about it. It's like, wow, you got four heads. One's an eagle, one's a lion, one's a cow, and one's a man. That's impressive. Can you turn one more time? You know, I mean, because they're going to have some pretty interesting movements. But we're not going to worship them. Don't worship them. Worship God. And, and of course, Jesus received worship. We read in Hebrews 1, 6 that angels worship him. That men worshiped him. Matthew 8, 2. Matthew 14, 33. John 9, 38. People worshiped Jesus. And he never once did what this angel did, which is 
don't do that. He always received it. He commended them because he is God and God is to be worshipped. Verses 10 and 11. Let's read those again. Um, Matthew 22 says, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. Hmm? What is, what's that? He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. What, what's that? The time is at hand. Things are about to happen. It's a timely message, verse 10. Don't close this book up and put it away and not let anybody see it. This, John, this is a public document for the church. Make sure this gets out to them all. Now Daniel, Daniel 8.26, he was instructed to seal the, some of the events that were revealed to him because, and the Lord says, because these are things for the latter days. Here, John is told the exact opposite. Don't seal this book because it is the last days. It's, it's now. This is a timely message that we need to hear. So you see the emphasis. This is a book to be read. Don't seal it. Don't close it. Don't. Can I say, ignore it. Don't avoid it. Open it up. Leave it open so that people can read it, so that people can study. Why? Because it's about to happen. It's about to happen. And when we understand the times in which we are living, not to try and make some clear you know, timeline of every event that happens on earth to try and assign it to something, I think that there's real danger in that. Now, I, I don't think that there's, um, that there's no value in that. I mean, we need to look at the times in which we're leaving, living, the seasons. But listen, to, we can't make something out of everything. And I just believe that when we should know, the church will know. And so uh, you've heard uh, my statement maybe that, you know, on this whole COVID-19, is this some specific sign that tells us that Jesus is about to come back? And, and my answer is, no. What it is, is it's a statement that Jesus said that between the time he leaves and the time he comes back, right now, the church age, what we're living in, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be pestilences. These kinds of things are going to go on. So what do we see? We see these types of things going on, which tells us that Jesus, was what he had to say was true. So in one sense, it is, yeah, it's a fulfillment of a prophecy that he said there would be pestilences, plagues, diseases, this type of thing. But this is just what's going to happen in the age, Jesus said, along with all those other things. I do believe there is significance of world events, but I just think we need to be cautious. If you can't turn to Scripture verse and make plain sense of it, and I've got to hear you say it 10 times to figure out what in the world you're talking about. And I've got to know the secret, you know, thing. I just don't care. <laughs> I don't want to know it. I, the, the Lord is not, doesn't hide in the shadows. He makes things known. We've got a book of Revelation. All that to, you know, to give us caution. But here's the thing. We are in the last days. How can that be? Well, in the Old Testament, 
they were headed towards the last days, right? We already read that one passage of Joel talking about the latter days. We could go to Ezekiel. We could go to Daniel. We could go to um, uh, probably uh, Zechariah and you know, Joel and other, many others. And they all were talking about coming to the last days. When Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, and ascended to the Father, that line of heading to the last days took a 90-degree turn. And goes up. And so now we're no longer headed out in time towards the latter days. We kind of are going out to those to that moment, and now we run alongside the latter days. Not a line going out into a, a distant future. We are in the last days. We are parallel to the last days. And so we're not waiting for things to be fulfilled. We can cross over into that, uh, these prophecies that we've been reading about at any moment. And that is our hope. And it is to be alive. And so this is what Scripture wants us to have, is this at-hand mentality. Well, what about verse 11? (laughs) Well, again, if verse 10 is a timely message, then verse 11 is, there's no time to change. That's kind of the idea of this. Clearly, um, this angel is not recommending that you go live a godly life and just stay there and just live it out. The point is, we are so close to these things. It is so near to happening that when it begins to happen, that there's going to be such a ferocity of these events. It's going to happen with such um, quickness that one thing's going to turn into another. One plague after another plague, after another war, after another disease, after another earthquake. And it's just going to be You can't even, it's like a boxer that can't even fall to the ground because the opponent is punching them so much. They can't even find their way to the mat. And that's the idea, is that when this all begins to happen, nothing is going to slow it down. Now, this is not to say that nobody will ever uh, repent. We read many um, who came to the faith. But if you're waiting for that moment, understand what he's saying. That moment is going to overtake the majority of the planet in such a way that they're not going to have chance. It's like, yeah, but I will. But how do you know you're not of the 50% of the population of the planet that's destroyed in one of the cataclysmic events? You don't know that you're going to have time. You don't know that you're going to have the next day. Man is going to be more rare than fine gold. And so there won't be time to change. I think that is the idea that is trying to be communicated. Verses 12 through 15, we see more about the blessings for obedience. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So in verse 12, we see the reward for obedience. The Lord is going to reward us according to our works. We are not saved, right? According to our works. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. So Jesus' finished work, that's what gives us salvation. But among those who are saved, our works will be judged. Jesus is coming with his reward. Now, how do you hear that? Behold, I'm coming quickly. What's the tone of voice that you hear in that? Is it, I'm coming quickly, and my reward's with me. I mean, how do you hear the Lord? Or do you hear him saying, 
I'm going to be home soon. I'm coming back for you soon. And I've got a reward for you. I mean, listen, many moms and dads have talked to their young kids and say, hey, I'm going to be home soon and I have something for you. Right? Am I, I remember coming back from these trips. Um, you know, all the mission work, I've been able to go to some pretty interesting place and pick up some pretty interesting things. Um, and the kids were, man, they were always ready to dig through my suitcase to find what I brought home. So I don't think this is a, a voice of um, intense sternness. I think it's like, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming quickly. And I've got something to give you. Um, and it's going to be according to your work. It, it's, I, I only hear a positive tone. Well, I don't care about rewards. He does. He cares about rewards. And I can tell you that as a dad, and you know as a mom or dad, if you would have brought some gift home to your kids, like, I don't care. Keep it yourself. I'm not into your gifts. Oh, offensive. I'm not into rewards. Well, my encouragement to you is to change that mindset. Don't be a spoiled brat and start being appreciative for what the Lord wants to give to you. And look for the reward. According to the work. So what is the work? I don't know. You've got to find that out. Use your spiritual gifts. Engage. Put your hands to the plow. And what's the rest of that? And don't what? Don't look back. Which is another way to say, get busy serving and what? Don't stop serving. But for how long? Until he comes. Until he comes. How awesome is this moment going to be to see Jesus and to see the reward that he has, a reward that he clearly is really excited about. And so the blessing, um, some of these blessings are identified. We see who he is, his presence, right? The Alpha, Omega, beginning, the end, first and last. It's him. That's certainly part of the, the, the blessedness. Um, and then he says, blessed are those who do his commandments. Now, some of you have a different translation, right? Does anybody have anything different? I'm there in verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Yeah. Blessed are those who wash their robes. So you've got the wrong Bible. Sorry. No, I'll talk about it. I'll talk about it. I'll get to that in just a moment. But here there's a blessedness that is being promised because we identify ourselves with the Lord. And because, as we go on, we have the right to the tree of life, right? We talked about eating of the tree of life last week. And we have access to the city, that great Jerusalem that's coming down. And so this is the blessings that he is talking about. But why, why this variant? What we, I just identified here is, is called a textual variant. Do his commandments, or is it? who wash their robes. Now, both of them communicate the same idea of walking in holiness, right? When you look at that, I say, well, okay, do his commandments, holiness, wash the robes, being clean, being holy. It communicates the same idea. So as with all of the variants, nothing is ever lost in the communication. So what is the reason for this variation between the two? And Again, the answer to almost every one of these is, well, we, we take a really good guess as to why. Um, quite often, 
It's, it's some errors. Now, you're like, well, errors? Well, I thought the Bible was out there. Yeah, it is. I mean, 99, like 99.9% of the Bible has no question. And of those parts where there is a question, is it washed in the robes or do his commandments, of those, there is no doctrine that is affected. There is no um, practical application of how you live your life, relate to each other, or worship the Lord. So you get down to this really minuscule part. How does that happen? Well, let me do my best to try and say both of these um, phrases in Greek, and maybe if I get close, you'll be able to understand why. So for do as commandments is poiuntas tas and talas autu. And wash their robes is plyantas tas stolas autan. And if you could see it, again, this would have been a great time for me to put a slide up there. If you could see it, you would see how closely these words are. And it would have been a really easy uh, way to have made a uh, scribal um, error. Not intentional. Well, why do they have them? The church was being persecuted. And so they were always picking up and running. There was attempts to get rid of these things, the, the, the text. Um, also, they were growing so fast. I mean, the church was growing so fast. It was being translated into different languages. They had a hard time keeping up with the demand. For I mean, we're, we're, we've heard a lot about supply and demand lately. They had a hard time doing it. So under intense pressure, under... Um, a, a, a huge demand and need for them. And you didn't have a scribe class of people like they did in the Old Testament when they were writing. So you had these variants. Now, I realize for some this is so troubling. And all I can encourage you to do is actually do some reading on it and you won't be troubled. Because there is thousands of manuscripts. And um, when you compare all of these manuscripts... They come to a place where these variations are so small. So how do they decide? Well, ultimately it comes down to an interpreter's choice, a translator's choice. And so one of the things is, what is the earliest translation? What did the earliest translation say? Um, it so happens that in this case, the earliest transa- translation is um, who washed the robes. That is the earliest um, textual um, writing we have. Um, those who do his commandments, that is in some of the later manuscripts. So, so that's one. Did it come first? That's one way. It's not, it doesn't solve the issue, but that is one way. Another way is, and this might sound surprising, but if you think about it, and you're just going to have to think out on your own, is what is the more difficult translation? What is the, what is the one that is the most difficult? Because the thought is, there would be a tendency for subsequent writers to try and solve problems, not make problems. So these are a couple of ideas. And, and, and there are other things. What school, uh, you know, what, what class of manuscripts did it come from? And did they have any tendencies in that particular group? So there's a lot of things that come into play. But what I want you to see most of all is, what is the difference between do his commandments and wash their robes? There's, there's really no difference. It's the same idea um, that is being commuted and that communicated, and that is that of being holy. Um, let's move on. 
Let's look at verse 15. He says, But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So all kinds of people. Now, dogs is just a way to, it's a metaphor for those that are sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and lovers and practices, who loves and practices lies. So great consequences for being disobedient to the word of God. Access into the presence of the Lord, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, will be denied. Um, you know, the great curse of hell, the lake of fire, is that you're not able to be in the presence of God. That's, that's the hard part. Because you will see him. I hope it's not you. Let's keep reading verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you that these, uh, to you these things in the churches. Again, the churches have this book, right? I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So the book of Revelation is for the church, um, as has been noted. But in verse 16, we read the statement that the Lord is the root and offspring of David. Now, how can you be both? How can you be the root and the offspring? Well, I mean, the simple answer is he is the eternal God, the, the second person in the Godhead. He is a pre-incarnate Christ. But the idea of it being, root, being the root of David is that David comes from him. But being the offspring means you come from him. And so Jesus makes this statement. But Jesus talked about this before. You know all the trick questions they put to Jesus when he was on this earth? Well, Jesus put to them, a, not a trick question, but a question that basically comes out of this. How can I be the root and the offspring of David? But it goes this way. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Or he's the offspring of whom? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Or root. How, how can he, if he's the descendant, how come the, you know, the greater in that, uh, that imagery is calling the lesser, the descendant, how come he's calling him Lord? It doesn't go that way. Why does he call him Lord? Verse 44, he quotes from the Old Testament. The Lord said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did he dare question him anymore. So, so Jesus is both the root, he is the, the giver of life, right? All things were made through him, and without him nothing is made that is made. So David comes from him, but the Lord also comes from him because he's born of a virgin, Mary, who is in the lineage of David. So you have both the creator and the descendant. And it's kind of an interesting little cross-reference. Again, it's Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. He also says he's the bright morning star, a way of speaking of hope. Um, this is found in a couple of other places in Scripture. I'm running out of time. But the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, come. And he says, come through the bride. Who's the bride? The bride is the church. 
We are the ambassadors. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, tugs on people's hearts to come. And we, as Paul said, seek to persuade men to be reconciled to God. Or as it says in Corinthians, the Lord is pleading through us, saying, be reconciled to God. An urgency should be in our lips. Well, I don't want to force anybody. Okay, so when you say force, what do you mean by that? You don't want to persuade them? Because persuading is biblical. Holding a gun to their head is not biblical. Don't do that. So if that's your idea of force, or you're going to hold out on food, or you're going to ram their car with your car, no, we're not going to do any of those things. But it does allow for persuading. Seeking to convince somebody that what you know of Jesus, that he's the first and the last, and without him you can't enter into his presence or into that city that he is making, then we, we need to persuade people. There must be an urgency and a love in our voice. Verses 18 and 19, don't mess with this book. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So don't mess with this book. Not just the book of Revelation, but any. And so there was, there was this tendency, uh, well, the, the Spirit anticipated a tendency for people to want to tweak with this book. And the Lord's like, leave it alone. Let it be as it is written. And we should allow that to take place. But what kind of literature is this that we've been reading? We've read this word at least five or six times here so far as we've gone through. What, what kind of literature is this? Is this a narrative? Is this poetry? What is it? It's prophecy. It's quite observant of you because it's repeated over and over. It's like the obvious conclusion in answer as to what kind of literature is this. Now, I'm just, I know I've gone over but you haven't been here in a while, and I'm excited to talk to people. So <laughs> I'm going to finish on this point, uh, all right, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. But I just want to talk about this idea of apocalyptic literature versus prophetic literature. So this is, gets kind of muddied because the word for revelation, the Greek word, is apocalypsis, which is where apocalyptic comes from. It means unveiling. But that's just a Greek word. But when they talk about apocalyptic literature, it's not going back to what the, uh, the idea of this being a revelation. It was a, a type of literature that came on um, about a century before and continued on for about a century after um, the writing of this, this book here, the book of Revelation. And in this, um, there's a few things about apocalyptic literature um, that... Um, are very similar to the book of Revelation, but there are some things that are very different. So what are some things that are similar? A lot of imagery, a lot of angels, a lot of visions, a lot of encounters with heaven. Those are some similar things. So the book of Revelation, a prophetic book, certainly has elements in its writing that are similar to apocalyptic literature. But I'm going to contend that doesn't make it apocalyptic literature, because it's called prophecy. <laughs> I mean, that's really the, 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 
the, the end of it all is, it's called prophecy. John calls himself a prophet. When prophets write, it is prophetic literature. But it's not just all prophecy. Chapters 2 and 3, um, they, they look more like an epistle, don't they? When you read chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, those read more like an epistle. So there are some things about apocalyptic literature as opposed to the book of Revelation that are concerning. Um, so those who wrote apoca- apocalyptic literature use pseudonyms. In other words, they, uh, they took somebody else's name. I'll give you an example. I'm going to write in the first century, and I'm going to write using the name Daniel, and as I write, I'm going to pretend like it's prophecy of things that are about to come, but in reality, I'm going to write about things that are happening right now or have recently taken place. And I'm going to use not my name, but a pseudonym, and I'm going to use Daniel. Well, to me, that's just deceitful. Now, that, that might be a type of literature and was accepted as a norm, but that's not the way the Bible works. This is one reason why. The other one is apocalyptic literature was pessimistic about the present where you really don't find that. You read about chapters 2 and 3, which is the present. It was all about overcoming. It was all about the promises. Um, Also, in apocalyptic literature, there was a limited amount of admonition to live a moral life. That certainly does not fit the book of Revelation. And apocalyptic literature does not call itself prophecy. Um, So here are some of the reasons why. Now, what's the difference? Okay, I want to be clear. This is like if you, if you go study on this, this on your own, and I encourage you to do that, of course, you, what you're going to find is a lot of people who believe this is prophetic literature are, are very comfortable of also calling this apocalyptic. Now, they don't go beyond that. They just see the similarities, and so they throw it into this, this camp. But not everybody does that. And so while they may call it apocalyptic, And that's the end of the story. That's just a type of literature. Others will say apocalyptic, and they begin to throw in some therefores to it. So, like, here are some of the therefores. Is that, well, apocalyptic literature was given to great exaggerations. So, therefore, when John talks about the greatest earthquake that had ever come upon the earth, you don't really, he doesn't really mean it's the greatest When he says half of the world's population is going to be destroyed, he doesn't really mean half of the world's population. Numbers are not meaning of specific units of time. They become more descriptive of general ideas. So when we read about 1,260 days or time times half a time or 42 months, it doesn't mean three and a half years or seven years. It's just a period of time. When you read a 1,000 years, mentioned six times in the book of Revelation, it doesn't actually mean a thousand. It just is it's representing a, a long period of time. So numbers begin to, to lose their significance and, because that's the way apocalyptic literature was written. written. And so um, uh, large, amazing statements, which the book of Revelation is full of, those you don't really take literally either. And so you move away from a, a goal of taking the imagery and the metaphors and trying to find a literal meaning. You move away from that and it just becomes a, um, it, really you're just, what does it mean to you? It's an allegorical approach. So while some believe this is prophetic and they're happy to use the word apocalyptic, I just, I want to warn you, 
If you ever read a book on Revelation, read that part of the book first and see where they say what kind of genre or what kind of style it is. So what is this? Well, it is prophetic. Let me close with what one author says on this subject. He says, The best conclusion for understanding the nature of the revelation of John, and this is Paige Patterson, by the way, is to see it as a prophetic circular letter which not infrequently makes use of apocalyptic imagery and device. Clearly, the author stood his role as that of a prophet. On the other hand, he lived in a day of conflict with imperial authorities and had learned the value of the apocalyptic as a mode of communication to the faithful. Having much in common with biblical books of Daniel and Ezekiel, inciting or alluding to massive amounts of Old Testament prophecy, the author of Revelation has provided a genuinely unique treatise. So, it's similar, it has some of those elements, and this is, I think, a, that's a fair way to look at it. Um, to not acknowledge that that type of literature is out there and there are similarities, it doesn't do anybody a favor. It really does exist out there. But this is a word of prophecy. It's not just wild exaggeration and meaningless images and meaningless numbers. We look for the meaning, because this is a book that is called what? Revelation. He who testifies to this, these things says, I, surely I'm coming quickly. Amen, or so be it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, we thank you for this book. And we agree with the prophet John. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We look for your coming, Lord. Stir up in our hearts an expectation Stir up in our hearts a desire to have our robes washed clean, to obey you, to walk obediently in your truth. Lord, um, we pray uh, that as you come with your reward, that we will be found with our hands on the plow, doing the very things that you've called us and gifted us to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.